0: This morning, I could ask you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 22, but instead, I'm going to ask you to read the same words virtually with me from Psalm 18, verses 1 through 24. You see, this passage is identical. The entire psalm is almost identical to 2 Samuel 22. In other words, this is such a wonderful and perhaps wonderfully important song that the Holy Spirit saw fit to include it twice in our scriptures. It was recorded by David after the Lord delivered him from all his enemies, including King Saul. It's possible that it was perhaps sung or performed or written on more than one occasion by David, and perhaps it was something that they sang in particular after a victory. But now hear the words, the first half of this psalm, Psalm 18, is actually the longest psalm in this section of the book of Psalms, uh, book one, and so here we're going to read half of it this week and half of it next week. Follow along as I read. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I cried for help, From his temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God for all his rules were before me and his statutes. I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. We're going to pause there, not because it doesn't fit with the rest of the psalm, but because it's a good place to pause, and I don't want to uh, spend perhaps an hour and a half on this sermon. So let's pause and look to the Lord in prayer. O oh Lord, as we turn to you, the words that we are a delight to you. As the psalmist wrote in the previous chapter, we are the apple of your eye. Lord, I am so thrilled to know that you love us, you care for us, and you rescue us from danger. Lord, we pray that the words spoken here might fall upon believing ears that hear and hearts that understand. And I pray that any words not consistent with your own shall pass away and never be heard from again. We pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, I'll have my people get with your people? Perhaps you've heard that. And I have to ask the question then, who are your people? In fact, who are you in light of there being a people? Everyone these days seems to be seeking a place where they belong. Isn't that true? Sometimes my wife and I sit down together and we tell each other, you know, we don't really fit anywhere. And we wonder where we would fit. And we want to identify sometimes with a group. In fact, the secular people around us tell us we have to identify in certain types of groups. You're like this, you're like that, you're this group or that group. This is what you must think, this is how you must believe. But wouldn't it be great if instead of us trying to find the group, Someone sought us out to be a part of their people. You see, this is the story of the Lord and his people. This is a God who sought out his people... In fact, David knows this quite clearly, even thinking of himself as the youngest of all these brothers out in the field when uh, God sends Samuel the prophet to choose a leader for his people, and he was so insignificant to his father that his dad didn't even invite him to the meal, and lo and behold, Samuel said, the words of God inspired to him, David is the one. You see, this is what God does for us, isn't it? It's not that we seek God out. In fact, the scriptures tell us there is no one who seeks God. We don't seek him out. We sometimes seek a God. Sometimes we seek a plan or a deliverance from something. But we don't seek the holy God of the universe on our own. But because God has sought us out, and if we have trusted in him, he has made us a part of his people, then that relationship is very special, And that's what this psalm is all about. The relationship of a holy, loving God to a man, in this case, who understands that he is part of God's people and he loves him back. So this is about the Lord's people who call him for help. The Lord who comes to his people and the Lord who rescues his people. Now again, recognize in your outline that you have in your bulletin, the Lord is the capital letters L-O-R-D. That means the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh or Jehovah, which is the proper name uh, in our text this morning. And the first six verses remind us that when we are God's people, we turn to him for help. Notice what it says. First of all, the first three verses, God's people rely on him. The first verse says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Now, interestingly, this verse was not included in the Second Samuel rendition. If you turn to 2 Samuel 22, you won't find that verse there, but you'll find virtually all the other verses we read this morning in that rendition of this song. But God's people, first of all, love Jehovah. They love the Lord. They love him because they have a relationship with him and they know their history with him. In fact, one of the things I thought about in this section of Scripture was David is really giving here a testimonial That is, a recognition of his relationship with God and why he has that relationship and will rely upon him in times of trouble. He first of all says, I love you, Lord, but he also recognizes who God is. He's his strength. This word for strength is the word for hardness or firm. He recognizes he has no strength on his own. Now, David's a warrior, He's a fighter. He's someone who has done amazing deeds. In fact, there were songs sung about David. Remember the songs that Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And he says, my strength is in the Lord that I love. And then verse 2, he says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, my shield, my salvation, or the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Look at all those terms. He recognizes that he finds his refuge in the Lord. Now, it's interesting, the terms here are divided up. Some commentators will say here they're divided up between geographical terms and military terms. In other words, on one hand, he says, you are my rock, that is a literal place by which he can find refuge and hide behind that rock when the enemy is coming. On the other hand, he recognizes that he is the horn of my salvation. The, the terms here recognize the, the animal horns that show the strength of, an, of, of, a, of that animal And are used in scripture to describe the strength of kings and kingdoms. And this is a military term as is the shield and and the stronghold. The mountain stronghold. All those things recognize that God is the strength militarily for David. Even as the enemy comes he can take refuge in the Lord. And of course look at all those terms. Rock. Fortress. Deliver, refuge, shield, horn, stronghold, all of those things. Recognize the first word of those things, my. It's a recognition that God is David's refuge and strength. And then verse 3 I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. The one who calls upon the God on whom he relies recognizes that this God is praiseworthy. He is praiseworthy, yes, because he is holy and just and good, but yes, he is praiseworthy also because of the history he has with his people. Why does David know that he's a refuge and a strength? Well, because he's served that way in the past. God's people rely on the Lord. And because they rely on the Lord, they cry to him. Look at verse 4. It really changes here from talking about who God is in relationship to David to talking about the circumstances by which David writes these words. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Now, of course, this is kind of repeating the same thing over and over. That's what poetry does often but it recognizes there are times when it seems that death is inevitable for david you know you know the history you know that when he was running away from saul there were times when he was fearing for his life there were times in battle when he thought surely the enemy would strike him down when death seems inevitable The man of God calls out to the one who can save. Then verse 6 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. It's not just when death seems inevitable. It's when distress seems overwhelming. When our circumstances seem to come up to our neck and we cannot fight it off any longer. You know what that's like sometimes. Perhaps there's been a conclusion that your health is not what you thought it was and it looks as if you were going to go through a very difficult experience and the distress seems to be overwhelming to the point that you just don't know if you can handle it. Or perhaps you recognize that in your job you're in over your head, you don't know what you're going to do, you can't possibly please your boss because you're not up to the task. Or perhaps it's in your family situation You have a spouse that you've not got along with. You've got a child that does not like you anymore and says bad things about you. You don't know how to handle those situations and you think, I can't do it anymore. The Lord's people call to the Lord for help. When I first read verses 4 and 5, the cords of death encompassing me, the torrents of destruction assailing me, all those things, I could not help but think of the cry of Jonah in the belly of the fish. You know, he talked about cords and seaweed and so forth surrounding him, dragging him down. He's here sitting in the belly of the fish. And Jonah, if you know anything about the story of Jonah, Jonah was called to go minister to the people of Nineveh. They were the enemy of God's people. And Jonah said, I don't want to do that. I know you're going to save them. So he turned around and went the other way. And as he's going the other way, he's thrown off the ship because he tells the people in the ship, this storm that's taking place is my fault because I'm running away from the God of all creation. And so they throw him overboard. He gets swallowed by the fish, and it's not until that point when Jonah realizes death is inevitable. He's in dire distress that he turns to God for help. Now, is it because Jonah wants to be saved physically you know, I don't know. I don't know if Jonah cares at this point or not. But I do know this. He has no doubt who God is. He knows that God is sovereign and can rescue his people. He has no doubt of God's power or grace. He turns to him in, in prayer and says, you are the God of salvation. He recognizes that he is the only one to turn to for salvation or For a present help in time of trouble. And this is what David recognizes. This is what the scripture teaches us. In times of trouble and distress. We don't always know what God's plan is. But we know that in the end. He is the only one who can truly deliver us. From times of trouble, distress. And even when death seems inevitable. There's a loving reliance. Upon the covenant God of the scriptures. And so David turned to him for help. But listen to the response. This is the most wonderful thing about this portion of Psalm 18 is the response that God gives. First of all, verse 6 says, From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. And then we're going to see that God actually comes to his people. First of all, the Lord hears the cry. It recognizes God is in his temple. The idea that God is removed from creation because he is the creator. He's not part of creation. He is outside of creation. So he hears these things from heaven. And yet he knows everything that is going on. You see, we have a direct line to God when we are the people of the covenant. And the best thing is, God is not aloof to his covenant people. He's not someone who doesn't care. He's not someone who doesn't act. He's not someone who winds up the world as the old uh, theologians uh, used to say in the early times of our country, winds up the world, lets it go, and is far removed from it. No, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God who loves his people and will act on their behalf. And listen to the reaction. The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. You see, God reacts powerfully to his covenant people, doesn't he? Think about this. Is David writing allegorically, or is he using the language of the day to show these things? That's possible. It's also possible God could have done some of these things in certain circumstances. In fact, this reminds us, in particular as we go through these verses up through verse 15, we'll see that that God uses the language inspiring David to write about his appearance on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel. Lightning. Lightning. Thunder, earthquakes, voices, arrows shooting, all those things occurred literally on Mount Sinai. And David is saying, this is the God who hears me. God can react powerfully to his covenant people. But perhaps more amazingly, the Lord Jehovah actually goes to his people. Look at what David says. He bowed the heavens and came down. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darknesses covering his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. You see, he's saying here, this is the description of a theophany, an appearance of God. We say it's a theophany if it's an appearance of God. We say it's a Christophany if it's an appearance of Christ. Here it is. He says God will actually come down and rescue his people in power against the might of his enemies. This is the God of the Bible. The God who intervened periodically through history. The God who at times could strike down 180,000 soldiers of the enemy. A God at times who would strike hailstones upon a group of people so that there would be more killed by the hailstones than they would be killed in war. The God who sent the plagues on Egypt. The God who caused the water of the sea to divide so the people could cross on dry ground. The God who came to his people what a wonderful phrase here now yes there's wonderful language here it may have been pictorial or allegorical here by david but it's also recognizing that god can do this whenever he wants you see we believe in this church in the supernatural because God is supernatural. He's not natural like the things around us. He's outside of creation. He controls those things and he can intervene any time he pleases. And then there's this description verse 12 or verse 13, "The Lord also thundered in the heavens, the most high uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire." He sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. The channels of the sea were seen. The foundation of the world laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. You see, this is a description of his omnipotence, his power. He's all-powerful. Even the, the earth trembles before the powerful plan of God in salvation. And of course, this is also a description of the fact that God acts on behalf of his people. You see, it's not just that God hears us and says, Okay, let's do something about it. Okay, here it is. No, he actually acts on our behalf. He somehow, some way, will put us in just the right position so that we are rescued by him. Sometimes that means direct physical intervention of the hand of God. Sometimes it's using secondary means by which he accomplishes his purposes. Whatever it is, notice these two things. First of all, in verse 13, that the Most High uttered his voice. He will speak judgment on his enemies. The words here, hailstones and coals of fire. In other words, when God speaks... Sometimes that speaking is so powerful it's as if hailstones and coals of fire come down and at some point we know when the judgment of this world comes God will speak and these things will happen. God will speak judgment on his enemies and he will also bring judgment on his enemies. You see the arrows of the day would have been the military weapons of which were very frightening. They didn't have rifles. They didn't have cannon in those days. The arrows of the enemy were the things that were most, uh, the, the armies were most unable to fend off. They had shields, yes, but sometimes those arrows could be quite dangerous. Even those who were in disguise in chariots were hit sometimes, as we know from scriptures. The lightnings, know what it's like to be struck by lightning imagine a war field where it was not only the arrows of the enemy and all of the human weapons that came down but also the forces of nature against those who had come against god's people so much so that even the river channels were changed and the foundations of the earth were laid bare earthquakes let forth the foundations of the earth were exposed at God's rebuke. The Lord acts on behalf of his people and brings judgment on his enemies. I don't know why it is. It's been a long time fa- fad now to bring back, particularly with children's literature and movies, the Greek God pantheon. You know, there are young people that know more about the Greek gods right now than that they know about the God of the scriptures. After all, of course, the society tells us, after we all, we know this is just a story. Movies, literature, even encouraging children to read these books about Greek gods and so forth. After all, they say we know that there's no such thing as a God that really comes down to earth to respond to the needs of mankind. Is that not true? No, it's not true. Because the one true God not only cares about his people, unlike the Greek gods, he not only loves his people, unlike that pantheon, he not only is a story about people who could intervene or interact with gods, the God of the scriptures is a God who really did appear. His name was Jesus, and he came on behalf of his people bringing, yes, judgment, but also salvation. You see, the thing about this particular chapter, this section of chapter 18, is that David is saying that if you are one of God's chosen people whom he loves and declares the apple of his eye, God will move heaven and earth to act on your behalf. Did you hear that again? If you're one of God's people, that is, you have placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because the God, the God of the scriptures and the God of the universe has worked faith in you, convicting you of your sin, causing you to repent and trust in him, God will move heaven and earth to save you. And he did. When Jesus came, some of these very things took place. When Jesus died on that cross, there were earthquakes There was a tearing of the curtain in the temple in two. There were such amazing things that took place during that time period that were much like the language printed in this particular psalm that people who cried out to God from total pagan backgrounds said, this man must have been innocent. This must have been the son of God. This is the God who would save his people. And the Lord comes to his people the Lord sent his son Jesus Christ so that the divine son of God would come to rescue his people and so it is the Lord rescues his people here's the description in David's day verse 16 he sent from on high he took me he drew me out of many waters this description of the rescue of David is kind of amazing because it's very reminiscent of the rescue of Moses If you know your etymology, you know that the name Moses means drawn out, to draw out from the water. You know the story of Moses, he's placed in a basket, his parents are trying to rescue him from the evil Egyptians who want all the male children of Israel to be killed. And so he's placed on that basket, and he's drawn out of the water, and that's his name, Moses. And here's David saying, this is how God has saved me. Just like Moses, he's drawn me out of many waters. Then verse 17, he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. What does that sound like? Perhaps it's the sound of either Israel being rescued from the clutches of the Egyptians as they march out from Egypt with nothing but the plunder that they took from the Egyptians. Or maybe it's also a recognition that God rescued the people of Israel time and time again in the wars they fought in the land of Canaan. And it seemed as if the people of Canaan, to them they were grasshoppers in their sight and they thought these people are too much. In fact, 10 of the 12 spies sent out in the history of the Old Testament. 10 of the 12 said, we can't go in and conquer there. These people are mightier than we are. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. But here it is, God rescued them time and time again from the people of Canaan. David says, this is what you do for me. You rescue me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. Even when they seemed too mighty for me, he says. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but who was his support? It was the Lord, Jehovah. But perhaps the best thing about this salvation, as it says, he brought me out into a broad place. The idea of a broad place is here he was in a narrow place. Sometimes even in Hebrew you have this term of distress, which means narrowness. In other words, your time of distress is where you feel hemmed in and there's no place to go and you think that your enemies are all around you and everything is going to be uh, in an inability to escape from that situation. And he says here, now you've brought me into broad places, into openness. Why? Because God delighted in me. This is perhaps the best thing when you start to mature as a believer as you understand yes there is a fear of God we should fear God he's the God of judgment remember all the words here like smoke coming out of his nostrils like the coals of fire raining down from heaven and perhaps an illustration uh, suited to Sodom and Gomorrah Uh, you know all these all these descriptions God is a God to fear yes But for David, this God that is to fear if you are one of his enemies, David being someone who has been called and cleansed from his sin by God, he recognizes God delights in him. And so there's this emotion of love that David has for the Lord. Because he delighted in me. I hope you have that sense. Some of us, as we go about life and we see all the details that are taking place and all the things we struggle with and the daily burden that we have and and perhaps the idea here that that it's hard for us to understand that we fit in anywhere, perhaps even in the church, and we wonder, does God really care about me and love me? I hope you come to the place where you recognize if God came to you, it's because he always, from the beginning and foundation of the earth, has loved you. So when he comes and rescues you from these tight places and brings you into that broad place, it's because he delights in you. You are the apple of his eye. You see, there's a relationship between rescued and rescuer. And that's why we come to this puzzling section 20 through 24 when we first read it. We say, is David saying, well, God, you owed me this? The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. And then it goes on. Look, it almost looks as if he's saying, look, God, look how good I am. For I've kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Is it because David was such a good boy that God decided to save him? Well, of course, if we look at other portions of Scripture, we know David says, I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you, Lord, and you alone. And he says, I have been sinful from the moment I was conceived. This is the David who wrote these other places in Psalm 51, Psalm 32, other places of Scripture. So we know that David does not claim to be perfect And blameless in the sense of he has no moral responsibility before God because he's completely kept and been perfect in every sense of the law. No, this is a reminder of the relationship he has with God who's already placed him in the covenant. He's the one who can turn back to God and says, I love you, and because you have already rescued me, therefore, here is my relationship back to you. Here are the expectations of the people's faithfulness to God. You see, this is not David seeking salvation from his sin. He already has it. He already has that covenant relationship with God. He's already calling them, calling God his Lord, his strength, his rock, all these things. He's already been delivered from his sin. Now he's speaking as a person of God who is living the new life from his perspective in the Christ who is to come. Now some of you like football this time of year. That's probably an understatement in SEC country. But imagine you have a relationship with your coach and you're on the football team. Imagine that you are someone who has been good enough and fortunate enough to be found by that coach. That coach has recruited you, has given you a scholarship, and you are on that team. Once you are on that team, you have expectations, don't you? There may be a curfew at night. There may be a, a place where they tell you you've got to get your grades and get them up and get them going. There are some certain reputations you're supposed to have. You're not supposed to cause a scandal in the community. There are certain things that are expected for you on that team. Not only for your behavior, but also uh, to be able to play the sport. But that's for those on the team. That's not for those outside the team. There aren't those expectations on someone who's a fan in the stadium that's never been on a football team in his life. No, those expectations are for people on the team, and so it is with us. There are expectations for us who are on the team, on God's team, You see, we can't be good enough, we can't behave well enough, we can't tell God, look, you owe me salvation because I'm righteous and perfect in your sight before we're saved from our sins. But once we're on that team, there are expectations. Paul says, should we sin now that we have grace? No, not at all. Let it not be. Instead, let us live a new life in Christ. Take every thought captive, it says in one place. Make the best use of your time in another place. And it says, if you love me, you will obey my command. So David is saying, I have this relationship with you. See, here it is therefore this relationship that's been established with you when you look at me remember who I am you see when it says the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness the, the word here for reward at the end of this also in verse 24 it says according to the cleanness of my hands he rewarded me according to the cleanness of my hands and side, or my righteousness he rewarded me the word here is to restore or bring you back You see, the emphasis is not so much on David's work as in the exceptional faithfulness of the Lord of the covenant. God made David who he was as far as morally acceptable before God. If we know David's heart, we know David's life, we know that that apart from God's grace, he was nothing. He was an adulterer and a murderer and all of those things put together. But by God's grace, he could be made faithful. By God's grace, he could be made righteous. So that David speaks as someone who's already on God's team. He's in the covenant. So that now he hears these words that Jesus says, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. He didn't say, he doesn't hear those words In judgment, now, he did before he became a believer, as we all should. When we understand in order to get to heaven, we have to be righteous. We have to have no sin before God. Then it's a fearsome thing because we're convicted. But once we understand that by God's grace, he takes our sin away and gives us his own righteousness. Then when he says, be perfect as I am perfect, we say, Lord, help us. Help us to follow your law and your way. In 1 Peter, when Peter says, Be holy as I am holy, quoting the Old Testament, he's reminding us that once we become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when we start doing things to please God, not to earn his favor, but because we delight in him. And here is David. David reminds us, in times of need, yes, we turn to the Lord because we belong to him. We're his people. He delights in us. He will move heaven and earth to rescue us. It doesn't mean that he's going to rescue us from every single situation. Sometimes he's going to let us face the consequences of our sin or the consequences of living in a sinful world or the consequences of someone's sin upon us. Sometimes he's going to allow those things to happen. But it is him that we turn to in time of need because we know he's drawn us out of many waters. We know that he's going to bring us into the broad place. And so we testify. You see, many people say this is a royal thanksgiving hymn. This is David testifying to the power, love, and acts of God. This is not just David saying, Okay, I I have needs sometimes, and I'm just going to cry out to God because he might have something to do with me. This is David who says, I'm going to cry out to the God who delights in me and loves me and has a history of saving his people, and I know the personal relationship I have with him. He's the one who has cleansed me and rescued me from my sin. And then he says... Then he says to the Lord, I love you. You are my strength. You are my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, the bolder in whom I take refuge. Is this the God of your life? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that every person here might, by faith, be able to express that you are their boulder of strength. You are their refuge in times of trouble. You are their buckler, their shield, who will defend off the enemies. You, Lord, are the one who will move heaven and earth to save your people. Father, we thank you that you've done so in Christ. And we thank you that you will do so in the future on the day when judgment shall come. We pray, Father, that we might dwell in your presence hidden under the shadow of your wings.